Isaiah, as we've considered the themes of Advent, of hope, of peace, of joy, and now this week, today, we'll continue in that manner looking at the final theme of Advent, love. Uh, If you've been tracking along the past few Sundays, we began with Isaiah 8 and 11 uh, for the first two Sundays, and those, the context was set during the time of King Ahaz, and there was a looming threat of the Assyrian Empire. Last week, we covered a very important section in the book of Isaiah, chapters 39 and 40, kind of sandwiched together, but we saw something interesting in those two chapters, or in between those two chapters, kind of. Chapter 39 was focused uh, on the time during the the reign of King Hezekiah. The the Syrians were still an imminent threat of the time, and they'd already conquered the northern kingdom of Israel, and they had actually invaded into the southern kingdom of Judah, and were basically outside the walls of Jerusalem, ready to take it as well. Long story short, Hezekiah turned to God and Jerusalem was spared. There's a little other foreshadowing that happens, but that's basically where chapter 39 of Isaiah ends. And it's during the reign of King Hezekiah, and things are kind of okay, basically, at the end of chapter 39. Well, then chapter 40 begins, and the context has completely changed. There's been this huge shift in the text, but it doesn't just go out and and name it, doesn't explain it. You have to kind of know it. You have to piece it together from, from other, play, other things that we know in the Bible. Because in between chapters 39 and 40, there's roughly about a 100-year gap. And a lot happened in those 100 years. Babylon had become the, the new kind of major power in the area. They conquered the Assyrian Empire. And then the Babylonians invaded Judah and Jerusalem. And they destroyed it. They set siege to it. And they destroyed the temple. And they took the people of Judah into exile as the the ruins of Jerusalem lay there. Well, we cleverly call this time in Israel's history the exile. Because many people went into exile. And all of that, all that kind of hundred years is missing from the book of Isaiah. And where chapter 40 begins is this address to those who had been in exile, and it announces to them this good news that the the time of exile is over. They had been through such a devastating time and all had seemed lost, but now there is this promise, this, this promise of hope and of joy in chapter 40 begins with the words, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Well, we're going to pick up today just a few chapters later in chapter 43, but before we read, let us pray. God of divine truth, prepare our minds and hearts to receive your word. Grant us a deeper desire for your presence in our lives. Guide us by the light of your truth and lead us onward to walk humbly with you each and every day. Bless this time and each of us now with your grace and love. Amen. So Isaiah chapter 43, and I'm going to condense uh, what I have in the bulletin just a little bit. I'm going to read verses 1 through 7 this morning. But now thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. 
and through the rivers they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, and Ethiopia and Seba in exchange for you. Because you are precious in my sight and honored, and I love you, I give people in return for you, nations in exchange for your life. Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, and from the west I will gather you. I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from far away and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. The word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. Well, in this passage, it's an uplifting passage. It's a message of, of hope. In this passage, we see the foundational motive for God's actions for his people. And that foundational motive is love. Verses 1 and and 4 say again, But now thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. Because you are precious in my sight and honored, and I love you. I give people in return for you nations in exchange for your life. The elemental reason, we have to kind of think back for Judah's destruction, for their exile, was because of the people of Judah. The people of Judah had broken their covenant with God. They had attached themselves to the idols of their day, and they did not essentially live under the rule and the blessing of God They instead rebelled. They instead to choose to go their own way and to follow their own wants. And their rebellion ultimately led them down a path of disobedience and destruction and even into exile. And while their waywardness came with devastating consequences, real and tangible consequences, God did not abandon his people. Rather, he sought to purify them. And to reorient them because God was working in this greater narrative, one that the whole of the Bible reveals to us. I think it was Soren Kierkegaard that said that the Bible is God's love letter to us. It's this great redemptive love story that is unfolding. And it's one that the book of Isaiah especially is tuned into. I don't know if it's just basic uh, human nature, but humans, I think, have a fascination with love stories. You know, there's the stories from classical literature like Romeo and Juliet. I mean, everyone's heard of Romeo and Juliet. There's the uh, Disney fairy tales, you know, Cinderella and Snow White and Beauty and the Beast, right? And more recently, there's the Hallmark Christmas movies. And um, in case you don't know this, I live in a house of all girls, Even our dog is a girl, so I am completely and helplessly outnumbered, Um, and I've I've accepted that, and I've embraced that. I'm proud to be in an elite club called Girl Dads. Um, With a badge of honor, I can proudly say that I have survived through princesses, through Barbies, through American Girl dolls, through My Little Ponies, through LOL dolls, through Shopkins, through all that, all right? And now... As the girls have gotten a little older, I'm facing the Hallmark Christmas movies. And uh, last night, 
I had started a movie with Ella, and I think others have had this experience before. You know, as a, as a parent or grandparent, you know, you start a show with, with the kid because you know that, you know, that's what they really want to watch, and so you start the, the show with them. But then at some point, and you don't really pick up on it, they leave the room, and 10 or 20 minutes go by, and you realize, I'm still watching this show. But then, you know, you could change the channel, but at that point, you know, even though you wouldn't admit it, you're, you're kind of too far into the show. You're a little too invested in it because you're going to stick with it till the end. Okay, so this Hallmark movie I watched by myself last night uh, basically follows the same predictable pattern of most all Hallmark Christmas movies, okay? So there's five ingredients. I've, I've wrote these down. I spent some time on this. Uh, there's five ingredients that I've discovered of a, of a good Hallmark Christmas movie. And if you're you're a note taker, don't take notes on this part of the sermon. This is not the important part. All right. So here's the five ingredients. First, you got to begin with the main character, right? Usually female. She's usually successful, focused on her work or something like that. You know, she's got ambitions. All right. So that's ingredient number one. Ingredient number two, she has to have a dream guy. You know, the guy that seems like checks all the boxes that she's destined for. But as a part of that, she also has an awkward run-in with an annoying guy, this guy that just kind of annoys her a little bit. All right, so that's kind of ingredient number two, the two guys. Then, ingredient number three, somehow, you know, and this is where the different movies play this out a little bit differently, but somehow she's forced to spend time with the annoying guy, but finds out through spending time with him that he's got a certain charm about him, maybe, you know, this endearing side. He's probably good with kids, or he's a single father, and, you know, he's, like, real invested and all that. But she's also kind of starting to sense these kind of unspoken feelings for this person, but it's just kind of, you know, you're, you're watching it, and you're like, it's obvious, but she doesn't really know it yet. So that's ingredient number three. Ingredient number four, there's some unnecessary drama. Because, right, because it's, it's Hallmark and that's what they do. There's some unnecessary drama and she pushes the new guy away. And she goes back to be with her dream guy, but realizes he's not as great as I thought he was. Right? So she, she dumps him, but there's this drama because she already pushed the other guy away. So now he's kind of feeling hurt and everything. Which leads to the last ingredient for the Hallmark Christmas movies. She decides that the annoying guy is really the one for her. And she has to make this kind of grand gesture for him, and then they kiss, and they, you assume they live happily ever after. That's where the show ends. So that's the five ingredients that I've, that I've discovered through, through serious study, through science, through all that. But, you know, whether it's Hallmark, whether it's Shakespeare, whether it's Disney, whether it's Hollywood, whatever, you know, the love stories that we are sold are often largely superficial and and unrealistic because they're 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 promising something that's going to completely fulfill us but they're centered on meeting our own wants and, and happiness they are premised on emotional feelings meaning that that love that they kind of glorify is only that which makes us emotionally happy The fairy tales, the hallmarks, the media advertising in our culture places us in our emotional happiness as the primary meaning of love, saying that's what it's all about. 
But divine love is different. There is a difference between love from a worldly perspective and love from a godly perspective. There's a, there's a very known or very well-known quote, um, often quoted from John's first epistle, chapter 4. God is love. This short, sweet uh, sentence. It sounds so pleasant, so uplifting and happy. And don't get me wrong, it should. That is a good thing that God is love. But we also need to be careful about how we interpret that, that we don't interpret it the wrong way. Because the word love for us, whether we kind of realize it or not, is a loaded word. Even without realizing it, we may already make some assumption about what it means. And, and I'm just going to throw out, this is what I hope the central message is today. So you're kind of getting it mid-sermon. Our idea of love should not shape our understanding of God. But rather, our understanding of God should shape our idea of love. That's kind of one of, I know that's kind of one of those kind of cyclical things. I'm going to say it again. Our idea of love should not shape our understanding of God. But our understanding of God as the source should shape our idea of what love really is. Our world's idea of love You know, this thing that is shaped by our media, our culture, our advertising, our movies. Our world's idea of love is that love that is about our emotional happiness. That should not be what shapes our understanding of God. If we equate God's love with only being associated with what makes us emotionally happy, we're at risk for some serious consequences. And I'm just going to highlight three. The first being idolatry. If God's love is only about what makes us emotionally happy, we are simply casting an idol after our own image and our own wants. This leads to, think, to thinking that God should approve of everything that I want and meet all my needs and what I want to do because I will feel like that will make me happy. God needs to cater to me. You know, in that though, we're, sim- we're essentially saying, God, I'm steering the ship here. I know what I want, and I know what I'm going to do. But friends, that's a destructive path to take. The second risk or consequence is, is kind of with, along with the idea of the prosperity gospel. Another type of this mentality, this prosperity gospel thinking, this idea that God's love for me is represented by how much worldly success I have, how much happiness I am having because my wants are supplied by God, because God is blessing me in this material way. That's when we have a a wrong perspective in that. And the last uh, risk consequence is we fall into having a feelings-based faith. The risk here is that if we don't feel emotionally connected with God, then we doubt God. Maybe we doubt God's existence or we doubt God's love for us. God is only, you know, real to us when we're having these mountaintop emotional, spiritual experiences. And this is where I think some ministries, some churches even, do a disservice by essentially doing sensory overload worship with laser light shows and fog machines and things like that. They're, they're kind of captiv- they're captivating our emotions and getting us emotionally high. But friends, our faith shouldn't be 
based on our feelings and our emotions. This type of faith is like the seed that's planted in the rocks or like the house built on the sand. It struggles when life gets hard, when we go through the valleys or when the the metaphorical flood of life comes. Or even just when there's not enough emotionally charged up spiritual experiences to keep us feeling connected with God. C.S. Lewis once said, The great thing to remember is that though our feelings come and go, his love for us does not. It is not wearied by our sins or our indifference, and therefore it is quite relentless in its determination that we shall be cured of those sins at whatever cost to us, at whatever cost to him. Our feelings should not shape our understanding of who God is. Rather, our faith, our understanding of who God is, should inform our understanding of what love really is. Over these past few weeks of Advent, I've mentioned how faith is the foundation of hope, faith is the foundation of peace, faith is the foundation of joy. Friends, our faith ought to be the foundation of our love. That is the source of our love. God doesn't call us to pursue our happiness, but rather God calls us to pursue his holiness. And in pursuing God's holiness, we see the real essence of what divine love really is, what it's built upon. And godly love flows from God's holiness. So what is our faith? What is what we believe about God? What does it teach us about love? How does our understanding of God shape our idea of love? And this isn't meant to be an exhaustive list. It's kind of a long list because as I got going, I was like, wow, there's something else. There's something else. There's something else. And so I'm going to go through these kind of quickly, but I'm just going to go ahead and warn you. There's nine points, <laughs> but I am going to go through them kind of quickly. This, this could be a topic of a whole book. I get that. But talking about what our faith teaches us about what divine love is. First, divine love is given. It's not earned. It's unconditional. And it's, I added this, it's pre-existent, meaning, or I'll, I'll get to that meaning. Our faith teaches us that God's divine love is a gift given to us, and it's given to us unconditionally. God doesn't say, go and do this first. God says, I've already done this because I love you. It's pre-existent before anything that we do. We see God's pre-existent love even in the first words of the Bible. In the beginning, God created. Creation is an expression of God's generosity, God's gift, God's love. And we see it displayed all throughout the Bible. From the beginning of creation itself to the end of Revelation, this, the Bible reveals to us this great narrative, this story, this God's love story to us where God is working providentially to restore what was lost because of sin. And we especially see it in the cross. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. We see it in Paul's words in Romans 5, but God proves his love for us that while we were still sinners, before we had done anything, Christ died for us. We see it in Ephesians 2, but God who is rich in mercy out of the great love which, with which he loved us, even when we were dead through our trespasses, 
made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. God's love is preexistent, it's unconditional, and it's freely given. It's unmerited. It's an unmerited gift by God's own freedom and electing decision. Second point, our faith teaches us that divine love is a covenant love. It's not just based on our feelings and emotions. It doesn't come and go, divine love is a covenant love. In the Bible, we see that God enters into a covenant love with us. It, basically, when you, when you look at the Old Testament and, and the promises that God makes to his people, God is essentially entering into a marriage covenant between him and the people. We see this in God's covenant with Abraham and Abraham's descendants. And in these words, God spoke through Moses. And I'm going to read just a few verses from Deuteronomy 7. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. We see this covenant love also in the book of Isaiah, just a few chapters after our reading today. If you flip to Isaiah chapter 54, verse 5, it says, For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth he is called. God enters into this covenant like marriage with his people. And in the New Testament, Paul explains how the church is the bride of Christ. God's love for us is this covenantal love. It's a committed love. And God is always faithful to his covenantal promises, even when we are not. Other times in the Old Testament, it even says how when Israel breaks covenant, it, it, it likens it to being an adulterer, breaking that marriage covenant with God. The third point, sacrificial and costly love. We see this in 1 John chapter 4. Yes, it says God is love, but it goes more, further than that. Explain, it explains what this love is. God's love was revealed to us in this way. God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be an atoning sacrifice for our sins. God's love is sacrificial and it's costly. It's free to us, but that doesn't mean that it was without cost. The sacrifice, the cost, was paid on God's part for our salvation. And us being recipients of God's love, our call to, to be disciples, to go into love as Christ calls us to, is a great responsibility. It's the call that Jesus commands his disciples in John 15. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. No greater love than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. The sacrificial love. Godly love is a love that sacrifices for others. It's a costly love. 
but a love that is, that is willingly given. Fourth point I want to make is that it's grace-filled love. It's not about being the best. Our faith teaches us that godly love embodies and extends grace and forgiveness. Like in Paul's words in Ephesians 4, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ has forgiven you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and live in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. I like a, There's a quote by Philip Yancey, and he says, There is nothing we can do to make God love us more, and there is nothing we can do to make God love us less. It is founded upon and it's centered on grace. And we should embody In our lives, we should seek to embody that same grace-filled love that seeks to forgive as we are forgiven. Fifth point I want to make is that it's an abiding love. Our faith teaches us that godly love is an abiding love, meaning that it remains constantly present. It's steady. It's a love that you can dwell in and rest securely in Just like when Jesus, again, is talking to his disciples in John 15, he says, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. I have said these things so so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. If you know who Corey Ten Boom is, she has a quote that says, There is no pit so deep that God's love is not deeper still. This has great relevance for us to guard us against feelings-based faith. If our faith is based on our feelings, we have those natural cycles in life where we feel distant from God or where, if we're kind of honest with ourselves, we think that God is distant from us, but God is with us. That's the promise of Emmanuel. That God is with us. There will be times when we feel distant, but that does not mean that God has abandoned us or forsaken us or doesn't exist. We're called to abide in God's love, to rest in it. And this call to abiding in God's love is a call to practice steady obedience to God. You know, it's, it's where our spiritual disciplines kick in. It's where staying true to, to, you know, Bible study and prayer and worship are central. Because they call us, they, they allow us to rest in God's abiding love. Next point, fearless. Godly love is a fearless love. Even from our passage today in Isaiah 43... But now, thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you, and I have called you by name. You are mine. We're back in John 4. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not reached perfection in love. We love because he first loved us. Godly love is a love that gives us strength in our weakness. 
It gives us freedom from the fear and the consequences of our sin. And in God's love, we gain a knowledge of the greater goal, the greater perspective that we in Christ have been saved. This world can throw a lot of stuff at us. It can even bring us down physically, but our eternal futures are held firm and secure in Christ. And we ultimately have nothing to fear because there is nothing in all creation that can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. All right, three more points. I'm almost done. These are going to go pretty quick. Godly love is missional love. It's outward focused. It's others focused. Having a godly understanding of love helps us see ourselves within this bigger picture that it's not just about us. It's about God working in us and through us and in this world. It makes us think missionally. And this stands in the the opposition to the type of selfish love that our world promotes, that it's all about you and what you want and the have-it-your-way advertising. Jesus instructed his disciples, love one another. Just as I have loved you, you should also love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples when you love one another. It's this sense that it's supposed to be this outward representation of God's love. It's supposed to reach other people. It's missional. It's also an enduring love. There's a wonderful psalm, Psalm 136, and it has this this, uh, repetitive refrain, and it says... uh, for his steadfast love endures forever. So, for example, verse 1 says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. And then it gives another verse, His steadfast love endures forever. It's this continual praise and reminder that God's love endures forever. I like what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2 that, you know, in the famous love passage that you hear at weddings a lot. It says that love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. God's love has no expiration date. And it endures through all the trials and the tough times. God love, God's love is an enduring love. And the last thing, godly love is a God-glorifying love. Because it's not about us. It's about God. It's about God's kingdom. Jesus says, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Godly love is not seeking, or love is not about seeking to glorify ourselves, but to glorify God through extending God's love to others. So our idea of love and what this world tells us love is all about, that should not shape our understanding of who God is. It's not about a God who caters to our wants and feelings, but our understanding of God that is rooted in biblical truth should shape what we know and believe about love. Our faith ought to be the foundation for our love, and our our feelings shouldn't be what shapes our understanding of God, but our faith in God should shape our understanding of how we represent his love in the world. And that's where the call is not easy. The call to godly love is not an easy call, but it is noble and it is good and it is true. We are created and designed to be the image of God. But as such, we are also called to embody and to model God's love, that type of divine love to this world. 
Because the world doesn't understand that type of love. It's the call of the church to teach it and to model it. So this week, as we gear up for Christmas Eve and Christmas Day in the season of, still in the season of Advent, as we celebrate the gift of Christ, the gift of God's love, let us, content, let us consider how we can love others. Yes, that includes strangers. You know, it takes like twice as long to get anywhere. You know, if you just need to do a quick run to the store and back, there's no such thing this week. It's going to take you twice as long as it normally does. There's a lot of stress happening. There's a lot of frustration happening right now. But model God's love. But I think where it's harder is sometimes modeling God's love to the people we're closest to. To people in our own family. To our friends. That's the call for us. Is to model and represent that sort of divine love that... that, uh, contains all this and more. This was just things I just kind of rattled off kind of quickly as I was thinking about this topic of love, this idea of what godly love is. So let us show and represent God's love to the world. Let us pray.